Hey, we are still in our series, Prove It, that we've been in for the last couple of weeks. And uh, I want to talk for a couple of minutes this morning about uh, something that a guy wrote several years ago. Uh, a Harvard psychiatrist wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. And he, in that book, he expressed that his fear was that sin was disappearing from our moral vocabulary. Not just the word, but, but the concept. Uh, the concept of a, of a universal standard of, of goodness and, and wrongdoing, of right and wrong, that he just he feared that that was, that was going away. He, he criticized the declining sense of morality in our culture and people's reluctance to take responsibility for, for their actions and, and for their own behavior. And he was concerned how that would affect uh, our society and on people's physical well-being and emotional well-being. Now, here's the, the kicker about all of that. That's not a new book. He wrote that in 1973, almost 50 years ago. Think about that. 50 years ago, somebody wrote, Hey, I'm afraid sin is, we're, we're, we're losing this idea of sin, and it's going to have a bad impact on our culture and on our society. And 50 years later, we're seeing that that has really become our reality. You don't hear the word sin uh, much these days. We're more comfortable with words like dysfunction or mistake or disease or, or even failures. In fact, a few years ago, the Oxford Junior Dictionary, they actually removed the word sin from, from its contents. They explained that it had fallen into disuse and it wasn't relevant to a younger generation. So if you have a copy of the Oxford Junior Dictionary, I don't know, do people still use dictionaries? I don't know. I don't, but you can look it up online, right? But... But if you have a copy of it, you won't find the word sin in there. And it's not just in culture where that's happened. It's found its way into the church, this idea, our discomfort with that. has found its way into the church. A couple of years ago, there was a, a popular TV preacher who was being interviewed by Larry King. So that will give you an idea of how long ago it was. Larry King was still living, and he was still on TV. And Larry King asked this preacher about the word sinner. And the preacher replied, I don't use it. I never thought about it, I guess. Most people know when they're doing wrong, and so when I get them into church, I, want to tell, I just want to tell them that they can change. And to be fair, I'm, I'm often critical of that TV preacher, but, but to be fair, I can appreciate his desire to at least get beyond the legalism and the judgmentalism that's often associated with Christianity. I, too, have been guilty at times of choosing words that, that don't carry as much baggage and weightiness as the word sin. But I think we'd all agree that Abandoning this notion of, of sin, when the church gets to that point, something's wrong. There, there's a problem with, with this idea that we don't want to admit that there's sin with us. That our message is probably not on target if, if, we're, if we're abandoning that notion of sin. Now look, I get it. It's probably not comfortable. It's not fashionable today to, to use a word like sin. But, but today I want us to focus on... On, on this idea that we will never prove, be able to prove our relationship with God. That's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks is, is proving it. We'll, we'll never be able to prove it until we deal with our sin. So like I said, we're in this series from the book of 1 John. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip over there. 1 John. Uh, we're going to still be in chapter 1 today. So if you've missed a couple of weeks, and, and this is the third week in that series, if you've missed a couple of weeks... Don't fret. First John is not a real long book. In fact, you can read the, the, the verses that we've missed here in the next few seconds while, you're, while everybody's turning there, and I'm talking about it. You'll catch up real quick. But, but today, I want us to see that, that our experiences, 
we'll never move into a relationship with Christ until our experiences and, and our, we're sharing our experiences. We'll never grow deeper in that relationship with Christ until we're willing to share those with other people. And that our behavior, our behavior has to match our beliefs. That, that our behavior and our beliefs are what take us closer to Christ. And we want that. We want to move closer to Jesus. You know, that's what we talked about last week. Many of us left last week, hopefully, with this resolve to make holy choices. That we're going to make better choices because our behavior has to match our beliefs. And so when we left here last week, that was kind of our challenge. That, hey, go, go let your uh, actions match your words. You know, if you're going to talk this talk, make sure that you're walking the walk. But before too much time had passed, I suspect something happened, didn't it? Someone pushed our buttons Somebody cut you off in traffic, you, so you wrapped in anger. Some, something distracted you, and, and before you knew it, your thoughts were taking you back to a, a, a dark place. In, in a weak moment, maybe you make a bad decision. You, a familiar temptation comes along, and you just give in to it. You slip backwards. You fell, you fell downward. We sinned. And not just once, probably, right? We, I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands and, and uh, you know, keep count, but... My guess is that all of us have probably sinned more than once since last Sunday. In fact, I would say probably it didn't take us long to get out of the parking lot, and we had done that. So what's that say about us as Christians? What do we do about it? How, how do we get into that upper right quadrant that we talked about last week where our belief in Christ is growing and our behavior is getting better, our, our behavior is starting to match our beliefs? And so that's the question we want to res- wrestle with today as we continue in 1 John. Remember, last week we said that John's letters organized around three tests of real Christianity. It's the doctrinal test. That's, you know, what do we believe? It's the ethical test. It's, it's how do we live? And the relational test of, of who do we love? So let's pick up where we left off last week. We're going to start in uh, chapter 1, verse 8. And uh, we'll finish the chapter and move into chapter 2 this morning. Here's what John writes, and this might be uh, one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claimed we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His words have no place in our lives. In in, in this passage here, these three verses, John confronts two mistaken ideas that people tend to have about sin. Uh, In his day, but also in our day, you know, this, this... I was talking with my son Eli about uh, last night about how we interpret Scripture and that we should always interpret it in light of who the original audience was. But there are some things in Scripture that, um, that the original audience and the 21st century audience aren't that different. And this is one of those cases where, where this, it's the same meaning for us as it was for them. And so here's what John says. He says there's two mistaken ideas that people tend to have about sin. And the first one is this, is that sin is not a problem. Look again at verse 8. He says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. A, a more literal translation of that would be, if we say that we have no sin. If we say that we have no sin, that, that expression, it's to, to have sin, is kind of an unusual one, which is why I think the translators probably tried to, to improve it a bit. And John, interestingly enough, he's the only biblical writer to ever use that exact phrase, to, to have sin. What John is describing here is is sin as a condition, not just an act. He's saying to to say that we have sin is to say that we have a moral problem, that we have an issue, that we have an underlying principle at work in our being a disposition towards disobedience. It's not just that we do wrong, it's that there's something wrong within us. 
The second mistake that, uh, mistaken idea that he says people have about sin is this, is that sin is not a problem for me. In other words, human beings, you, me, whoever, might claim that, that there, are, there is a problem with sin, that humans have a problem with sin, but I don't. You have a problem, but I don't. I've gotten beyond that. I've matured past that. I, I, am, I am moving toward this, this idea of perfectionism or holy, uh, you know, a holier than thou, whatever, and I don't have a problem with sin anymore. You struggle with sin. I see your sin all the time, but me? I'm past that. I don't have that problem. And John says that's a mistake. Look back at verse 10. He says, If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His Word has no place in our lives. Here John is not talking about sin as a condition, but sin as actions, as a behavior. And apparently in the first century, there were some teachers in the church who were convincing people, and these believers were following along, that that people had achieved a certain level of spirituality where sin wasn't a problem for them anymore. That they had moved to a higher level of spirituality. They had, they had you know, leveled up, so to speak, and they weren't uh, bothered by sin anymore. That, that sin just didn't affect them. And, and there's this idea out there, and, and I guess it's, it's kind of a logical idea, but it's not practical, that says that, okay, if I can go one second without sinning, then I can go two seconds without sinning. If you can go two seconds without sinning, then you can go five seconds, right? And eventually you work your way up to, to a minute, right? And so if I can go a minute without sinning, then I should be able to go an hour without sinning. If I can go an hour without sinning, then I should be able to go six hours without sinning. And if I can go six hours without I can go 24 hours, right? So I can go a day without sinning. If I can go a day, then surely I can go a week, right? And so there's this idea that, hey, if I can go a week without sinning, then eventually I should be able to work my way where sin isn't a problem for me. Except that's not practical. Right? Like, I agree. Like, we should be able to do that. We, we want to strive for that. But it's not practical. Because the reality is, is that most of us can't go a day without sinning. No matter how hard we try, we, we fall. We, we fall short. And so, so John is saying that that's a mistake to think that sin is not a problem for you. He, he refutes both lines of this thinking. And, and if we think as human beings that we don't have a sin problem, then I'm just going to tell you, I think we're, you're delusional. If we claim that we haven't sinned, we're making God out to be a liar. And that's some pretty strong language. But, but John knows that we can never move into a relationship with God, the, the relationship that God desires for us to have with Him, until we face the reality of sin and our own personal sin. The reality is, is that we are sinners by, by nature and by choice. That's how theologians put it. In other words, we have this disposition towards sin and, and, and we commit sins. And John's not the only biblical writer to make that point. Uh, after committing adultery and murder, David, he says in the Psalms, he prays, For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He confesses both his sinful actions and his sinful sin in, in nature. Paul writes in the New Testament in Romans chapter 3, he says, There's no difference, for we have all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. Paul's saying that we've all missed the mark. No one's exempt from this. We've all missed the mark. We've all stepped aside, stepped off the path. We've all broken the law. Sometimes in ignorance. Sometimes in weakness. Sometimes just in flat-out rebellion. But the testimony of Scripture is clear. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And when we make this declaration, we're not saying that human beings are evil, Okay? We're not saying that human beings are evil through and through or that they never get it right. The Bible is clear that human beings are created in the image of God. 
And our very nature is designed to reflect His goodness and His love and His justice and His beauty. And sometimes, oftentimes, we do get it right. It's just that ever since the fall of of the first man and woman, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, human beings have this skew in our nature away from God and His goodness. This disposition toward toward doing the wrong thing to hurt people uh, that, that we love and to trash what God meant as beautiful. Our very nature is shot uh, through with these tendencies. And some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds a whole lot like a, a, another doctrine from some other groups. And, and, I wouldn't, and, I, and I'm not trying to, to claim that this morning. But, but I would encourage you to think about this. If you don't believe that we have a sinful nature, that, you know, that, that we are inherently good people, I'll tell you, number one, I think that's foolish. But let me prove it to you. One of my favorite things about church on Sunday mornings is getting to high-five and fist-bump all our little kids. That's one of the things I try to make a point to do every week when, when I pass them. Because I want them to, to not be afraid of church, right? There's, church for, for little kids can be a scary place. And, and I want them to, you know, when they see me out in public, to, to recognize, oh, that's the guy from church. And I like that guy. He gives me a fist-bump. He high-fives me. We have some great kids in our, in our nursery and in our preschool room and in our kids' church room. But I guarantee you, If you go spend a day with them, they will do something that's not right. They will do something that you will have to correct them on. Why? Because it's inherent in their nature. You go to the nursery. I guarantee you there's a kid in there at some point today that will take a toy from another kid. That's not right, is it? They haven't been taught to. We don't have a parent in here that teaches their kids, hey, go steal toys from other kids, right? We correct that behavior. But it happens. It will happen in the nursery where another kid will go up and bite somebody. It happens, right? And so it's because there's this disposition to do evil, to do wrong. That's not because they're bad kids. We have great kids. It's not that they're bad kids. It's just that we have this disposition to do bad because the fall of Adam and Eve, this sinful nature, just it's everywhere in our, in our society, in our culture, in our world. It has invaded and, and perverted what God intended to be beautiful. It's the, it's the human experience that testifies to that. And, and so we can talk about it with little kids, but as adults, we, we don't really grow out of that either. You, you would think as we get older, we would mature and, and we would be able to resist temptation better. And, and maybe we do, but maybe we don't do it as well as we should. Because, I mean, is any one of us in here really willing to say that you've never done anything foolish or hurtful or rebellious? Is there anyone in here that would be prepared to say that they don't have to fight back tendencies that get them in trouble again and again and again? I don't think so. So what do we do with our sin? What do we do about this? Well, most of us, God willing, will never commit any kind of sinful crime that will Change life forever, you know, that's going to put us behind prison bars for the rest of our lives. I hope, I hope that never happens for any of us in here. But every one of us will routinely do things and say things and think things that hurt somebody, that are, that are hurtful to others and hurtful to ourselves and hurtful to God. So what do we do with that? Because we've got this sin that drives a wedge between ourselves and, and God and between ourselves and others and between ourselves and, and, and the Christ-like self that we were meant to be. So what do we do with our sin? Well, we've got a couple of options. We can ignore it. We can try not to think about it, and we can make excuses for it. You know, she started it, or, or he did this, and you know, it's the way men are wired, and, and it could have been a lot worse. You know, we can just make excuses for it. 
And none of us would claim to deny sin, I don't think. But practically speaking, we choose to ignore it. We minimalize it. We rationalize it. We learn to live with it. It's really just kind of a cover-up. Like John says, we, we don't want to admit to ourselves that God, uh, to ourselves and to God that we have a problem. So there's one option. We can just ignore it. The other option is to obsess over it, to punish ourselves for it, to beat ourselves up for it over and over, to wallow in the guilt and the shame and the regret that comes with sin. And the problem with this is obsessing over it really only serves to drive us deeper into that sin. It, it, it only drives us further from God and from others and from who God has created us to be. Chances are you tend to, to lean toward one of those two responses to sin in your life. That you either ignore it, you just kind of make excuses for it and you live with it, or you obsess over it and you punish yourself for it with guilt and shame. And the problem is neither of those really work. Neither of those actually solve the problem of sin. Neither one removes guilt. Neither one restores uh, us to a relationship with God and with other people. Thankfully, there's a third option for dealing with our sin. According to John, he says this in, in verse, uh, verse 9, chapter 1. He says, we can confess it. It's one of the most wonderful verses in the entire New Testament. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To, to confess your sin, that's, that's to name it, to own up to it, to admit it to yourself and, and to God that you have done wrong and, and, and it is wrong and that you are sorry for that wrong. And confession isn't easy. Nobody likes to admit that they're wrong. I mean, husbands, how, how much better would we be in, in our relationships with our wives if we would just admit we were wrong from time to time, right? We, nobody wants to admit that. Nobody ever likes to admit that they've done wrong. But confession means that we, we are openly acknowledging our failure and our weakness and our guilt and our shame. One of the things that I like about the Catholic Church is that they practice confession on a, on a fairly regular basis. Um, I don't agree with a lot of the things that the Catholic Church does as, as practice, but I think this is a good one. And maybe it's because of the anonymity, anonymity of it that they're able to do this. You know, you go into a little booth and there's just you and the, and the priest and, and you confess your sins to the priest. And, and look, I'm not saying you have to come and confess your sins to me. In fact, I, I don't want you to do that. <laughs> I don't... I'm not going to confess my sins to you most likely. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of a two-way street there. Um, but maybe we should be in a better practice of confessing our sins to God. In, in getting ready for this message, I, I found an old article in Sports Illustrated. It was from the early 2000s, and it analyzed the confessions of some high-profile athletes who had done wrong, um, who, and they had come forward, they had publicly admitted it, uh, and it rated each athlete's confession on on kind of a level of sincerity and, and difficulty. How difficult was it for them to, you know, were they confessing to something that was a big deal? Was it a minor deal? You know, whatever. And, and the interesting thing about this little chart, this little article that they had, was that, it, that the athlete who seemed to be able to move past their transgressions were the ones that openly admitted to what they had done. And so, you know, I, I, I did it. We're moving forward. And, and there was a, a feature piece about Andy Pettit. Andy Pettit was a pitcher for the New York Yankees and the Houston Astros, and uh, he was one who, who most quickly and openly and humbly confessed his actions. Pettit was involved in the steroid and the PED scandal. Uh, and comparatively speaking, Pettit admitted to his role, unlike others like Sammy Sosa when he testified before Congress in 2005, like he just suddenly forgot how to speak English. 
and he just he he went with that for like a month. He like I, I don't speak English, and it's like, yeah, ESPN has showed you for years talking to the media, and when he got before Congress, he couldn't do it anymore. Rafael Palmero was another baseball player who just pointed his finger at, at Congress and said. Sorry about that. He, he pointed his finger at Congress and said he'd never used performance-enhancing drugs and steroids, and, and he was appalled that they would even call him to testify before Congress. And then, like, two weeks later, he tested positive and was suspended by Major League Baseball for, like, uh, you know, 50 games or whatever it was. Those two guys never really recovered. Their reputations didn't recover. They certainly didn't fall back into the good graces of fans. Their Hall of Fame chances, both of them, Hall of Fame player, caliber players, they'll never get into the Hall of Fame because of that. Andy Pettit, on the other hand, who admitted to what he did, and some of you are thinking, I don't even remember Andy Pettit being a part of that. That's how, that's how quickly, because of his confession of what he did, that he had been involved with it, that he had cheated, that's how quickly fans just forgave him. And they moved right on with life for him. And, and he, had a, he had a stellar career after that point and will probably be a Hall of Famer because of it. The point is, is that confession allows us to move past our sin it allows us to move forward with our sin uh, from our sin and as important and helpful as it is to confess our sin to other human beings ultimately each of us has to confess our sin to God because he is the primary one that we've offended he's the and and he's the only one that can do anything about it anyway right in fact John says that if we confess our sins God will do two things so what's God do with our sin well first he, he will forgive us Go back to verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. This idea of forgiveness, do you, you know what that is? It's, it's to release someone from their debt that they owe, from, from their obligation. That, that if you forgive them, they, they no longer have an obligation or a debt to you. Um, when someone forgives a loan, it means that you no, no, you no longer need to make those payments, right? You don't have to pay on that loan any longer. When God forgives you of your sin, it means that you no longer need to pay for that sin. You don't need to punish yourself and wallow in the guilt and the shame. You don't do, need to do a penance for it. You're, you're off the hook. And that, that sounds kind of easy, right? And, and I don't even know that I like that phrase. But, but it's saying God is, is allowing you to move forward. That you're no longer uh, responsible for that sin. The second thing that God will do when we confess our sins is to cleanse us. It says at the end of that verse, and, and He will purify us from all unrighteousness. That, that word purify, it could just as easily be translated cleanse. To, to purify something is, is to remove what doesn't belong there. It's to, to cleanse and get rid of the dirt that, that's there. When, when you wash your hands, the whole reason we wash our hands, right, is to remove the dirt and the germs and the bacteria that might be on there, especially before we eat, right? We don't want to contaminate our food with that. And that's what God is saying is that if you will confess your sins, I will cleanse you from all of that. I will get rid of the dirt that is in your life that, that will infect and, and, and bother you for the rest of your life if you don't confess it. We'll remove all of that. There's a commercial for a laundry detergent where a middle-aged mom is, is secretly borrowing her, her daughter's new shirt. Uh, she's going to go out with some friends for, for a night out on the town and and while she's out on the town, she spills something on her daughter's brand new shirt. And it's right in the center. It's this massive stain. But thankfully, she's got new detergent with Actilift technology. And with one wash, that stain is gone. And the shirt is returned to the closet like nothing ever happened. Nobody ever knows anything else about it. And mom and daughter go on with their relationship like nothing ever happened. 
Of course, there are no secrets from God. He knows it all. He sees it all. He feels it all. But he's willing not only, but he's willing and able to not only forgive us for what we've done, but also to cleanse us from it. What's the old uh, hymn say? Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Forgiveness releases us from the guilt and cleansing removes our shame. Forgiveness takes care of our past and cleansing makes possible for our future. So where does that happen at? How does that happen? Well, obviously confession, part of it is just talking to God. But there's another part of that that I want to spend just a moment on. Peter in the New Testament, he makes a point about both of these things, forgiveness and cleansing. He says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he tells the church on the day of Pentecost, he says that if you will repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, you'll receive forgiveness for your sins. Baptism is such a beautiful picture of, of death and burial and resurrection. And it is the point in time in which believers have their sins forgiven and are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Um, I, I love this picture of baptism because you know Jesus, when He died and, and was buried, He didn't stay dead, did He? He didn't stay in a grave. He came back out from that grave and people saw him and he talked to him and they, and they ate with him and they walked with him and they did all of these things with Jesus and he was a real physical person. He went on with life after that moment, after he had defeated death. And baptism is the point in, in our life, in our walk, where we, are, where we are dead to our sins, to our old self. We're buried because that's what you do with dead people. You bury them. But just like Jesus, we don't stay dead. We come back to life. We, we are raised. When you come out of that water, it's like, like a new start, a new beginning. It's where your sins are forgiven. Peter would say that, that, that if you will repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in his letter to the church in chapter 3, he says that baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not just about a, a, a getting, getting rid of the germs on your skin. He says, but an act of a clear conscience towards God. That, that cleansing happens, not just getting, it's not just a bath. It's not just, you know, throw some soap or some chlorine in there and we get rid of all of that stuff. But no, it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual cleansing. It's the removal, not just the removal of dirt from the flesh, but a, a, an act of a clear conscience towards God, that your conscience has been cleansed. It happens at baptism. He says, baptism now saves you. That's a timing, that word now, it's a timing word. When, when somebody gives you a gift, when, when do you receive that gift, right? When you take possession of it. That's when you, when you have that gift. And Peter says that when you are baptized, that that's where this happens, where the forgiveness of your sins takes place, where the cleansing of your conscience takes place. And this is all possible. Not because God is a softy who's willing to look the other way when we mess up. Who's willing to just sweep everything underneath the rug and pretend like it didn't happen. But it happens because He is faithful and just. John explains it this way in chapter 2. First two verses, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God can forgive our sin because Jesus paid for it on the cross by his death. God can cleanse our sin because the blood of Jesus washes it away no matter how deep and dark the stain is. Honestly, I don't know what people do, how people live who have nowhere to go with their sin and with their guilt. I don't know how they 
live in life, how they function in life. Do they just cover it up? Do they just carry it around with them? Do, do they just kid themselves into believing it doesn't matter? How much better is it to just confess our sin? Because then and only then are we free. Free to live from the very deepest part of our beings, knowing that the deepest part of our being has been cleansed from sin. And that's really kind of the big picture, the big point for today, is that you know you're proving it. You're proving your relationship with Jesus when your sins are forgiven and your soul is free. That's how you know. That's how, how you know what you, what you say matters and what, you're, what you believe matters when your sins have been forgiven and your soul is set free. John says, my dear children, I write, to, write this to you so that you will not sin. John wants us to understand the deep damage that sin does to our souls and to our relationships. But he also wants us to know that if we sin and when we sin, it's really not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, when we sin, we have a Father that we can turn to who is capable, who is willing, who is able to forgive us and to set us free. Praise God for being faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins to Him. Let me pray for us.